Hi, and just before we begin our new episode, I just wanted to mention that on Saturday, December 3rd to December 4th, we're having yet another live stream fundraiser to raise money for the Children's Miracle Network through Extra Life. And we're looking to raise funds for the Boston Children's Hospital and the Alberta Children's Hospital. So if you'd like to and could take the opportunity to donate, please donate at distractionsmedia.com forward slash donations and you'll see the place where you can donate there and more information on our live stream. And you'll be able to follow it all along at twitch.tv forward slash distractionsmedia. Can't wait for you to see it. Take care. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 21, Through the Glass Darkly. We've been spoiled in the last 50 years. Three major sources of Roman history have focused on, to differing degrees, on the invasion of and pacification of Britain. These documents, combined with archaeological finds, have given us a peek in the end of the Iron Age to the beginning of the Roman one. Tacitus, in fact, leaves us with the comment in his eulogy to Agricola, Britain was conquered and immediately abandoned. However, while the area of Scotland was abandoned, Britain was truly conquered. The Welsh tribes were overcome and the last resistance in England and Wales went with them. This period sends us into a dark period where once more rumor, fragments, and archaeology define what we know rather than literature. The territory we now call Wales has by degrees Romanized, and much of what that means we hear very little of in the record. In fact, a lot of what went on in the second century is a complete vacancy of information, largely probably to do with the chaos that comes after the Servian takeover of Roman controls, but earlier than that, probably likely down to the fact that it was generally a peaceful time. With the end of imperial efforts in Scotland, much of the country has begun to live in a Roman way of life, or at the very least has fallen under the sway of the new masters enough to treasure peace over independence. Villas begin to spring up across the agricultural communities in England and southern Wales. The military begins the process of guarding settlements and forts. Likely they spend time chasing bandits, periodic raids, and enforce Roman justice when called upon. While likely there is some social mobility during this period, there also may have been some calcification of the elites, as peace and stability offers a chance to profit from it. One of the problems we also see is that there's a lack of British elites which are mentioned, and often uh, when it comes up later, it's almost like it's sort of the hickish types in the view of the more classically Roman areas they viewed Britons as more or less backwater has-beens. And so often there is an impression that they didn't have a lot of control, at least from archaeologists and historians before that. But it's very difficult to know because a lot of the names that are used are Roman names, but Roman names get used across the empire. You know, once you've been Romanized, you're not necessarily going to use your past names and the old historical British names. You might move on into calling your child Augustus or Maximus or Julius or, you know, various forms of that type, Scipio, Servius, 
Uh, all of these names now all of a sudden become very popular, much like how after the English domination of Wales, you get a lot of English names which suddenly become popular, as in William. Uh, and those names suddenly take precedence and predominance. That'll be the same here. A lot of people are now using Roman names. So it's hard for us to know who's British and who's, you know, come from out of town, so to speak. And from around 100 years after the Claudian invasions, the form of Roman Britain was largely cosmopolitan and focused on the military and the market towns. The new military legions needed to be fed, clothed, and stocked while they built infrastructure that would begin to define Britain for 300 years. In 122 AD, Hadrian, the new emperor, began his famous defensive wall under the guidance of the new governor, Aulius Platorus Nepos. Nepos was a friend of Hadrian, and some historians say he was also likely from the same Spanish tribe. The building of the wall would outlast both his governorship of three years and even Hadrian himself. Uh, the wall, which we've talked a little bit about before, becomes... I think has a twofold reason for being built. One is it's an infrastructure project that keeps your military busy and out of thinking of, you know, higher station or status. Uh, two, it acts as a way to defend your borders, which Hadrian was big on. Hadrian, unlike his predecessor Trajan, had decided that Roman expansion is something that should stop. Much like Augustus before him, he believed that they'd sort of reached the fringes of the Roman ability to control. So he pulled back from, from the eastern invasions, which had pushed as far as India. He pulled back in places like Britain, whereas Trajan had been trying to move up into Scotland. They pulled straight back and went back into northern England and then set up the current Hadrian's Wall uh, as a defensive post. And then along the wall, every five miles, they put up a fort. This would then, of course, defend the territory, but it also acted as a way station for people trading so that you could obviously charge them a tariff as they went back and forward. And maybe they were going to see their families, so you can charge them a tax on that. You know, there's all these kind of things and ways that the Roman government made money. And that was definitely one of the ways that they did that. However, this is not to say things were rosy in Roman Britain. Under Emperor Antonius Pius, sources claim that there was enough unrest that three legions, the 20th, the 9th, and the 2nd, were then reinforced from German border legions. Uh, unfortunately, that isn't much as we get. We don't really know much about what caused the issues that would need the reinforcement of these particular legions. These three legions are the main legions that sit in Britain for basically hundreds of years. They will not be switched out until many, many years later, as Rome, Britain, or as Rome starts to have other problems than trying to maintain the borders of Britain. And because of that, they are longtime residents, effectively. So likely they are from out of Britain, but there may even be some locals that are now involved. Um, the other big change here is you start to see that the wars with the British, Scottish British tribes uh, they often are now called Picts uh, or painted people. Uh, they become an increasing concern to the Romans. And on more than one occasion, British governors increased the manpower to deal with the problem. It, we also know that in 139 AD, the governor Quintus Lullius Urbicus brought in troops to Scotland to set a forward control point. They created turf ramparts, and with it, the so-called Antonine Walls were created. These walls ran from Bishopton to Caridon, 
and fell out of use almost as quickly as they were built. Also, British troops head to other parts of the empire to start serving in military affairs elsewhere, which is pretty typical of the Romans. What they'll generally do is once they get a place settled, they then part of the way to integrate people into the empire is to bring them out of their local areas and expose them to other areas. And so you end up in military service. You get paid better being in the military. Yes, it's more dangerous, but the, the rewards at the end of your service are, I would assume, worth it to a lot of people, especially if you're growing up on a farm where your life expectancy isn't necessarily great. You know, the idea of staying on the farm or staying in this local area or going to see the world, uh, it might have had a lot of influence in what people decided to do. And so you would get more influence in going to do these kind of things. And then, as I said, the rewards are, of course, you get to keep some booty when you defeat people. You also get to take advantage of getting land after your retirement, after your years of service. Those years varied in the empire as time went on, you longer and shorter depending on the situation. But you know, it, no different than any full-time military. You, you, know, you get paid, you get clothed, you get fed. Everything's sort of taken care of for you and you just have to do what you're told. You're issued your you know, standard Roman military outfit and off you go. You know, take your gladius and follow orders, you jerk. And Various reasons for this and the way that the Roman discipline worked obviously created its own set of interesting standards. But you can imagine that it would be very similar to today where you would have people who would come to your town or, or community or farmland and say, you know, either by through patriotic request or through demands of duty or other appeals as necessary would gain up the right amount of young men and then move off to go you know, do the deeds of what the empire has asked them to do. And largely that's how Roman imperial military worked until later in the decades and centuries where they started to rely more and more on people who actually didn't live in the empire to help protect the borders. In 143 AD, the empire issued coins, in fact, depicting Britannia as to mark the century of Roman Britain, and also at the same time to show that it had reached its greatest extent and consistently to show that they were making um, headway in Britain. So every time they had a, you know, a victory, they celebrated it with coin issuing. That was very common in the Roman Empire. One thing that became clear is that Britain was the province of Britain rather than revolting to support British kings or independence. It seems that taking part in the grand scheme of the Roman Empire was what happened. So thus, in later centuries, the British become embroiled in some of the chaos of the Roman Empire in the second century, in the third, well, specifically in the third century. And often that led to problems in Britain, which we'll get more into next time. But it, you can see that this constant shift in, or you can see that after a while, you end up with this circumstance where you know, you were a British person and considered yourself a Briton, or more likely your local tribe, you were Ordovai, you were Siluri, you were a Debonitai. Now all of a sudden you are a part of this Roman Empire, so now you feel Roman and you're Romanized and you do Roman things. And thus, you know, one of those things is to get involved in, in things outside of your immediate circle. And we'll see this get even more broadly defined in the next two episodes. 
By the late 190s, many of the forts along Hadrian's Wall were slowly being depopulated. The military of Rome was being used in other places or depleted because of casualties and various wars, rebellions, and when usurpers, which were a constant issue for the empire, would arise, they would have to pull troops from various border communities. This, of course, leads to it falling slowly into disuse, probably opening up the area for more raiding, which then eventually leads to a return to these walls and a reinforcement of the troops later during the Servian imperial time. And we will see that this idea of dealing with Scotland becomes a constant ache for Roman emperors pretty much through the third century. While writers continually talk about problems for the Romans at the wall, there is a lack of evidence of real military increases, and in fact point more to raiding issues than actual wars. The Roman military might have been concerned, as it had, but by and large they appear to not be serious enough issues to deal with. More or less the Romans had said, we got these guys beat, so we don't need to throw legion after legion at them. Yet at the same time, this doesn't stop Roman commanders from sending troops in to deal with the local British and Scottish, or Scottish, or Picts, depending on how you want to describe them. And so often, as I said earlier, the Romans would continue to issue coins marking a victory in some battle. Ulpius Marcellus, for example, defeated the Pict raiders in some major battle, was big enough to create ceremonial coinage about 80, 184 BC. By the 3rd century, the constant peace in the south will allow the former tribes of Britain to create towns and cities, to build an agrarian lifestyle that will dwarf previous attempts, and the wealth in Britain during this period will give rise to local leaders with sites on bigger prizes. Uh, in fact, one of the Roman leaders who is a British governor, Clodius Albinus, declares is declared by his troops emperor in 193 AD, and he becomes the first pretender to march towards Rome from Britain. In that period, as he's doing that, he ends up cutting a deal with Septimius Severus and is set up as sort of the heir to him as leader, and Severus becomes the head of the... becomes emperor at that time. But... By 197, so only four years later, at Lyon, they end up in a major war so bad that it actually hurts the overall Roman military for years to come, and it's a near-run thing at best. He is the first Roman, major Roman player to come to Brit from Britain, but he will not be the last or even the most famous as far as the Welsh are concerned. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. 
Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. Because of this century of peace, Rome ends up in a century of chaos. And because of this, the third century will be very different and much less stable. And that will reflect on Britain. And we'll get into talking more and more about how this affects the communities of, of Roman Britain and Wales in, gen- in specific. As far as our Welsh-Roman influences... Let's talk about one of the sites of a Roman fort, which is a very important fort in North Wales. That's called Saguntium. This is where the modern-day city of uh, Carnarvon is now located. This base was at one time a fairly major fortress in the area. And effectively, much like in other places, these forts were set up and, and they would send troops out to kind of deal with locals They would be places where market towns would be set up close to, and often they would be places of influence. Now, in the case of Saguntium, one of the things that becomes obvious with it is is it controls a fairly strategic area. It looks across, of course, the Menai Straits to, to Anglesey. So, of course, if that's where some of your troublemakers have come from, this is how they dealt with them. You you put troops there and you basically watch over them, much as they did with the Silures when they put the Second Legion in Carleon. This would be the same sort of case here. This would, there would be troops sent here and they would be set up probably on a, a, 
although I'm not entirely sure on this, but probably on a previous settlement. In this case, they were put on Llan Beblig Hill, uh, on the outskirts of what is now Carnarvon, and uh, they would obviously have the high place, which would allow them to see the local area. Like I said, they could then send troops out. Uh, it may have been, the name Sigontium may have come from a local tribal name called Sigont, who may have lived there, or it may have been named after the river, which is also there, uh, as had been done with Isca after the river Usk in Caerleon. Being so close to the sea and the busyness of trade highways, this would have been a key facility and a key spot for an administrative center in North Wales and a way to make sure that there was no trade going on or no nothing going on that the Romans didn't want. And it was a way, as I said, to control trade, to control influx of raiding, because, of course, you can see it coming, and probably to keep under heel problems coming out of Anglesey. We know about this location because of early evidence that was found actually in the 1500s. Even though the site is only a small one as far as what we've been able to really archaeologically look at, we do know some things, one of which is that they found a tablet which actually names when some of the work went on on this fort. Uh, one of them, in fact, names uh, Septimius Servus, who we just talked about, as uh, issuing the repair of an aqueduct in the area, um, which is interesting to sort of see how it's it's a lot like, you know, the local government puts out a plaque, you know, covering who paid for this new building or new infrastructure. So they did sort of similar things in the Imperial Roman period. So, for example, it reads, Under the emperors Septimius Servus, Pius Pertinax, Mar Marcus Aurelius Antonius, and Publius Septimia Geta, noble Caesar, the stream of this aqueduct collapsed through age, were restored by the first cohort of the Saniki. Now, the Saniki are an interesting group because that cohort actually comes out of uh, Gaul and, and Belgium specifically, and were a local tribe living there. This is actually fairly common. We find a lot of Belgic military units in Britain at this time. I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing one of the reasons could be is because they spoke similar languages to the Brythonic that's probably being spoken at this time. And so they could talk to them and could negotiate with them, probably knew the area a little bit better than, than Romans from, say, Italy or from Spain or from Africa or especially the Middle East, where they would be very unfamiliar with the climate and things of that nature. So this would be a way to kind of build relations with the local community. So it's interesting to see how they were kind of based around there. The other thing we can take from this, which I think is interesting, is that they have found that this place was used over a long period of time. So sometimes with Roman forts, they'll get used. They'll initially start as wooden structures and basically fall into disrepair, and then they will either replace them with more wooden structures, or in some case, eventually, they'll go to stone. Probably in part to keep the military busy, probably in part because things become more problematic as time goes on, so they need stronger areas to, to protect. And generally, this facility was used quite a long time, so thus it would have the same sort of treatment, so that by 
the time we get to the 200s, we're looking at a place which is much more formally built. And much like Issaca, where in Caerleon you see stone walls being created in the 3rd and 4th centuries, you have the same sort of thing going on here. It's, it's a much later development as chaos sort of ensues in Rome and the surrounding provinces. They go back and start fixing up these places, and we'll talk more in detail about that next week. But there's definitely a sense of rebuilding, reconstruction, and stiffening the defenses, and this is one of those areas where they do do that. And this base is pretty much occupied right up until at least, uh, we know, 383, uh, because there's coins found from that period. So likely, it actually may have lasted as long as 390. So this fort, as I said, was probably one of the earlier forts set up in Britain, especially in Wales. It was set up as a defensible location. It had a key uh, trade and raiding route. It was close to the areas around our mighty Druid locations, so it would have, you know, kind of a dancing influence of them. So at that point, you may have had a Druidic community who was much more controllable, or you didn't have them at all. And as we've talked about previously, Anglesey was an island where raiding came from, so this would have been a key fortress in order to keep that in at bay, and likely you had naval units based there as well as land units, so that they could deal with like Irish raiding and other things that may have been going on at the time. Certainly, we know that Ireland and Wales had a lot of influence on each other, that there was cross invasions, that often the Irish raiding parties would hit whales and take slaves and various things that happen even into the later part of the next millennium. But at the same time, that probably built up a reason for these troops to be there and a reason for them to protect that area. And it shows you that that's about as far as the Romans wanted to go west in this part of, of Wales, because they didn't go settle any more forts farther down the field. In fact, most of the rest of the area is more or less left alone. There's no road infrastructure there built by the Romans. There's little evidence of, of infrastructure or archaeological finds of the Romans in that area. So this is kind of the outpost of Roman Wales in the northwest, and probably a key location to sort of maintain control. And like I said, quickly send troops where they need to be sent deal with problems if they need to, but for the most part, it may have remained there effectively just to kind of keep other problems from happening. And it's a fantastic place, so it's definitely worth seeing. There's a lot of interesting ruins. It, it would be nice if there was more archaeology, archaeology done there, because I think it's actually, if you think about it versus, say, Ithaca, Ithaca, where in Caerleon there's been a lot of work done and a lot of archaeology done, and then on top of it, they put museums to show these various things. There isn't that same type of thing. There's so much more geared towards the local castle, which, to be fair, is quite magnificent from the Edwardian period. But it, because of that, the Roman site has kind of taken a bit of a, a back seat and I, it's unfortunate because I think there's a lot of cool finds that have been found there 
There's a lot of interesting things that we can take from it. And there's a lot of education that can be given to the local population about their history. And that gets missed when we're not doing that enough and we're not pushing that enough. So I think it's something that we need to, to continue to look into. I think it's something that we would be worthwhile continuing to investigate. And I'm sure there are people doing that. But the, the more that we can do and the more that we can we can help set up a way to understand this area, it gives us a better chance of understanding what our ancestors did in that era. Next week, we'll be talking more in depth about the people and some of the things that we can find out archaeologically and in written records in what went on in Roman Wales and Roman Britain in the third century, which was a century of chaos. And certainly that one is going to be an interesting one to talk about. But much like this era, there is a lack of written records. We have some, but they're very small. Typically what we end up with is, is plaques and metal finds that tell us some things, but we don't have a lot of books that we can point to and say, hey, this is what was going on, which is unfortunate, but it is the way things work in Britain at the time. And so we, we just have to live with the lack of evidence. And it, unfortunately, this is probably the high point of the la- of this because once we get past the next couple of episodes, we're going to enter a field where there is almost nothing to tell us what's going on. So we'll talk about that more later. Uh, I will remind you that we have a fundraiser going on. We are collecting uh, Money for Extra Life, which is an organization which raises funds for the Children's Miracle Network and for children's hospitals across North America. If you would like to donate, you can donate at distractionsmedia.com forward slash donations. And anyone who enters with a $5 donation or more will be entered to win either a used history book, which, or you can get an Amazon gift card of $25, which, hey, you know, that might be good for Christmas or in some other spending that you want to do, or if there's a book you want, which isn't the one I'm offering. But I will give you the choice of that. You can have either one. Anyway... I look forward to talking to you more about this next week and take care, everybody. Bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. For more information, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.